the end now of this, this letter in Peter. Um, it's uh, five chapters, if you, if you didn't know that. So we're almost at the end. And one of the, the topics that I love talking about the most is actually the topic that we're going to explore this morning. Um, what a great promise that God gives us that you might not see at first. It sounds kind of gloomy, um, but, um, and, and it sounds like maybe a, a touch like extreme, but it's one of the greatest promises that we have in Scripture. Now, I think all of us might have seen from time to time at like some sporting event or kind of walking down the streets of a larger city, that guy with the sandwich board, right? He's got a little message on his front and on his back, and it's usually not good news, right? It's usually not like, hey, you look marvelous, right? It's usually pretty bad news on that sandwich board guy. The end is at hand, it might say, or um, the end is coming quickly, some variation of this. Now, I think as a Christian, my theology tells me that that's not an incorrect statement, right? Like that there is a a projected end to life as we know it, even into this world as we know it, yet we still kind of sort of look at this guy and furrow our eyebrow, think he's a kind of a weirdo, maybe a little batty, um, extreme, lacking tact, whatever it is what we might think. Um, and, And if you're secular and you're not a Christian and you see this guy, you you immediately think, that's why I'm not a Christian, because that's just a little weird. I don't want to be like that. But the Bible repeatedly claims this message. Now, I don't know if that guy should be on the corner. I'm not speaking into his life, whether that's wise or not. What I am saying, though, is that we have to contend with Scripture, with this message that the end is at hand. The end of all things, is at hand. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the Word of God. The very first sentence of the text that we read. It's a hard sentence because we all have that caricature of some extreme sort of person that just is out of touch with society at large. But here it is in the Bible. The end of all things is at hand. The Bible's clear and repeated message is that the end is coming quickly. Quickly. Now some of us might say, oh, thank God. (laughs) Right? I am so tired of being single. I am so tired of being angry or whatever. My mother-in-law. Gosh, uh, the end is coming quickly. Thank God. Now I don't think that's what the Bible's intention is here to encourage us with this. There's another intention. But the end is approaching. The life that we live, the lives that we live, human history, as we know it, is headed somewhere. And it's not out of control. It's not just spinning, the, 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 the earth is spinning like a top, and it's just going to end sort of arbitrarily, without any direction or consideration. The Bible teaches that there is a God who created all things and that God is moving that creation towards his purposed end. That there's a purpose to your life. There's a purpose to this world. And there's even a purpose to the tragedies and sufferings that we endure in them. Okay? Human history and our lives are not without purpose. That there is an end to it. God in Scripture 
is Lord. That means that he's in charge, that he's the director, that he has a purpose in which no one can interfere with that purpose. So according to the Bible, God is the Lord of history. History are those events in life, some wonderful and some tragic, that God, the Bible says, is Lord over, that he is directing even even the wicked intentions of the human heart to his glorious purpose. And as mysterious as this can be, the righteous judge, the God who loves and saves, is the director. He is leading it, and he will accomplish his purpose. How relevant this theme is to our lives. The power to which every Christian has access to endure all kinds of suffering is just this, our future hope that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's bringing us somewhere. He's escorting us to an end. So this morning I want to do two things. I want to explain what the Bible means by the end of all things is at hand. What does this mean? The end of what? Is there a new beginning? We're going to answer those questions. And also I want to, I want to close with how it affects our lives now. So what, right? What's the purpose of it? How does it affect my living? How does it affect the way that I treat my wife or fellow members of a church, right? So I want to look at <clears throat> what it means that the end of all things is at hand. I want to describe it. We'll call that the description. And I want to talk about the implications. So let's, let's look at the description of the end. Verse 7a was the very first verse that we read in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's just the, the first part of that verse. It just very simply says... The end of all things is at hand. It doesn't say the end of what. It doesn't say if that marks a new beginning. It just says that the end of all things is at hand. So we don't really know exactly what Peter is referring to here unless we go outside of 1 Peter and look at what the Bible teaches about the end of time. The rest of the passage states the implications of what it means that the end is coming, how this should affect our lives, which is the second part of our service today. But it doesn't say much about what it means by the end. So we have to go to other places of Scripture to look to various parts of the Bible to understand what it refers to. And we can make some observations. Now look, this this theology, right, is a very long one. It's a very exhaustive one. Um, In theology, the, the $100 word, the heavy word, is called eschatology. It means the study of last things, right, the things that are yet to come things to come that the Bible promises will happen in the future. Now, we could do a series of, on that alone for an entire year and still not finish it. So this is just one sermon to kind of give you an introduction to some of these things that the Bible talks about. <clears throat> so let's talk then about the description of the end. The first observation that I want to make from Scripture that I think is a very important one is that the end is certain. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not God might do this. It will happen. The end is certain. God is not like the deist's watchmaker. Do you know what a deist is? A deist is someone who believes that there's a God, but we have no relationship with him at all. He doesn't really do anything for us. He doesn't even keep the world existing. He made the world to live on its own, and now he's off doing something else, whatever it is that he's doing. 
So we're sort of on our own, according to the deists. So in that scheme of things, the end is not fixed. It's not certain. It's not predetermined by God's purpose and plan. It's whatever we decide that we want it to be, right? But according to Scripture, this is not the case. In the Bible, God is active in the events of human history. And Jesus, by the way, an example of this, Jesus is seen as slain before the foundations of the world. So even before God created anything, he had a plan to send his son Jesus Christ to die for sinners. You see, and this was an inevitability. It was a divine decree. It means that nothing that you or I or anything could do to resist that from happening. So when God said, let there be light, no one can interfere with the will of God. No one could get in between him and the light and stop the light. Because God has all power and all wisdom, and we cannot interfere with his determined will. So the end is certain. The coming kingdom, just like the coming of Christ to die for sinners, is a divine decree. The end of all things that ushers in the kingdom to come is a certainty. <clears throat> now we might think we act independently from God. We might think that we don't need God. We might think that somehow we push up the sun in the morning, but we don't. God even, in Scripture, uses the evil intentions of man's heart to accomplish his perfect will. Do you recall Joseph? What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph was sold into slavery certain by his brothers, facing certain death in prisons, went through all of these harrowing situations. God used it to bring him to be second in command in Egypt, which saved his family from famine. His brothers, not realizing that he's still alive, and not only is he still alive, but he's second in command in Egypt, approach the Egyptians because they have food, and they approach Joseph. He recognizes them. Do you remember this story? And they don't recognize him. And then, then everything, the ball drops, Right? And then they realize, this is Joseph. Our goose is cooked. He's going to kill us. And Joseph responds, what man meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because, because of what you did, God used it so that I would be in command at Egypt to save your lives. Now, this was just more important, by the way, than saving their skin. Because God had promised Abraham that the Savior would come through the nation Israel. They had to be saved for that promise. You see, no one can interfere. The Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. No one can interfere with God's determined will when he decrees. He is involved. The end is certain. Man, we might think we act independently from God. We, we might think that he's off somewhere else doing his own thing, but he's not. You know that in the very last book of the Bible, it's right before the, the book of concordance. Um, it's the book of Revelation. That was a joke. No one laughed. Forget it. Um, <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Not what might soon take place. Not what we hope soon takes place. What must soon take place. The Greek word for must is D-E-I, day. It's the word that, that, that scripture writers use to talk about what is a divine inevitability. 
God has a decreed purpose, and it will happen. So it's not something we want to happen because it's a good option, right? It's not something that we want to happen because there are other bad options. It must take place because God has willed it so, decided it to be. And Satan cannot interfere. You cannot interfere. There is no power in heaven or on earth that can stop his will. Must, it must be, because it will be. And that will there is the will, the predetermined will of God Almighty himself, who has a plan and a purpose. Just as Jesus determined before his death and resurrection that he would die and resurrect, so is the end determined by God's counsel. This is his plan. This is his purpose that no one can interfere with. Friends, just think about this for a second. The end of all things is at hand. That's the Bible's word to us. How does that change things for you? How does that put things into perspective? The fact that the end of all things is at hand. Well, I don't really know what you mean yet. The end of what? The end of, the end of you know, debt? You know, well, let's talk about that. Let's keep going. Number two, the end, so the end is an inevitability. It is certain. Number two, the end is imminent, okay? That means, the word imminent means it can happen at any time. These things must soon take place. What he's saying there, not so much as that it's going to happen in a second or tomorrow, it means that it's, nothing is inter, there is no other prophecy in Scripture that needs to happen before this happens. Does that make sense? These things must soon, they can happen at any time. Peter says, you know, in the next letter, you know, there's two letters that Peter writes in the New Testament. He, he talks about this again in his second letter. Let's read what he says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, there it is, the end is, the end is at hand, so we're in these last days. These last days, scoffers will come. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Good question, right? If it's going to soon take place, is not the last 2,000 years of it not playing, taking place proof that this is wrong? Well, listen to what Peter says. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You see, when a thief breaks into your house, you weren't ready for it, right? That's the point. If you knew he was coming, you'd be there with bats and police officers. You see, we don't know when the thief is coming. That's the point. The day will come like a thief, unexpected, imminently, at any moment. You know, it's true that when, when Peter was talking about this, the apostles, you can read this 
in church history, the, right, the early writings of the church fathers, they believed that their generation would see the return of Christ. Their, so 30, 40 years. So when they heard the word soon, he's coming quickly, he's coming soon, they took it very literally. And they weren't wrong, friends, because, because the end is imminent, it means it could happen at any moment. That means it could happen in the next 30 years. It could happen in the next 30 seconds. Oh, friends, nothing is interfering with the final call of Jesus Christ when he comes back and returns. So the principle isn't so much when, like the date. The Bible actually warns us to not do this. Um, usually when you start naming dates, you get kind of nuts. This has been a historical, I'm not even trying to be unkind. That's, that's what happens to groups when they start saying 1988. There's a book actually that was written. It's called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Um, it's no longer in print. <laughs> Unless it's 2088 now. Just changed it. Um, the principle isn't so much when, the date, but that he will come. It requires no other prophecy to be fulfilled. In other words, there isn't something else that God has promised that hasn't happened yet. In the Old Testament, God promised a Savior that would die for sinners. So in the Old Testament, they didn't have this category. The end is imminent. Because it wasn't imminent. Christ had to come still to die for sinners. But now that he's come and resurrected, it is imminent. Isn't that interesting? The only reason that we find in the Bible why it hasn't happened yet, we just read it in 2 Peter. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Oh, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you returned this moment, the judgment would be final. The end would come. The separation that you would know from God's love would be unending. So he doesn't come with clouds yet. This is a grace to you, friend, so that you might believe and trust in him, that he is your greatest love, he's your greatest joy, he's what you've been looking for your whole life, to come to him in repentant faith and trust him for your salvation. You see, that's why Christ has not returned yet and the end has not come, because he's calling us, those of us who don't know Jesus yet, to come to believe in him, to trust in him, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When Christ returns, friends, oh, how gloomy this is, I know. But there is no more opportunity to turn in repentant faith to him for life. That separation is eternally fixed. So, friends, should we not see even this fallen world in which God allows for some reason, why does he allow us to continue like this, in this misery that so, so many of us often know? Well, oh friend, it's so that you could be rescued from the misery to come that is so much darker and bleaker. He who could return at any moment and call everyone to account at that moment refrains so that you might see him and love him and rejoice in him. So the end is certain. The end is imminent. Number three, it is the end of this age. This age. It's not the end of existence as we know it, but it's the, ex the end 
of this age. The time just before the end, when the end comes in Scripture, is the period of time, it's called the last days. We just read about this in just the the verse prior. The last days is what comes just before the end. So the time just before the end in Scripture is called the last days. It's the period of time between the leaving of Christ when he went to heaven and ascended and his return. It's that peri- it's the, in other words, it's that period of time in Scripture that we're living in right now. And, the, and so far it's been over 2,000 years. And you know that the Bible describes this age positively and negatively. Many of us, I think, if we're more pessimistic and kind of blue in our demeanor, we're going to identify with the negatives the more with the positives. But consider the positive description of the age that we live in, these last days. We already read one. It provides an opportunity for lost people to be reunited with their God and maker. There's grace, in other words, in this space that we live in. For those who are lost to be found. You know that it's the period of time where Jesus Christ himself is building and nurturing his people you and I it's a time where we get to know him and love him and grow in our faith for him more closely it so it provides us an opportunity to be more formed into his image you see that's the last days that's the church age that we live in right now it's bigger than our problems it's wider than our goals. You see, Christ calls you, if you're a Christian, he calls you to be formed into his image. Not to warm the seat, not to have a, have a nice job or a nice family. Those things are included and those things are great. The Bible doesn't poo-poo on those things. But the Christian life is so much more than that, friends. It's an opportunity to be filled with all the fullness of Christ to mortify or kill our flesh and our sin and to be formed more fully into the beauty of who Jesus is. Isn't that great? That's a positive of this age. That's an opportunity, if you're a Christian, that we have this moment to be filled with the Holy Spirit and his fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You see, that's one of the positives of this age that we live in. It provides God's people to realize and to demonstrate the presence and power of God's Spirit to the ends of the earth. What a great privilege we have. What a great purpose we have. Ephesians 1 is an awesome summary of the positives of the present age that we live in. It says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Now, I'm tripping over that. What the heck is he saying? The fullness of times. He's talking about the, the age that we live in. He's, he, Paul is saying that he revealed to us the kind of his intention of his will during the last days, until the, those days were full or complete when before the end would come. The summing up, in, in back to Ephesians 1, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. You see, friends, at the end of this age, 
the Bible describes it as a summing up of all things in Christ. That is because the work of redemption is complete. God has built his church. All things in Christ have been summed up. See? Things in heaven, things on earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Oh, praise God. This purpose, purposed and determined end, was won by the death of Jesus Christ. The reason it's determined, the reason that it can be summed up, wrapped up in a bow, if you will, completed, that the church, that, that God's mission to save his people has been accomplished is because Jesus died and resurrected and he's coming again to complete it. Isn't that fantastic? You see, friends, this puts, for me, everything into perspective. That my life and all the things of my life that get me so worked up and so upset and so angry and so anxious, it puts it all into perspective because it makes me realize that everything is pushing me towards that end. Christ is purifying me so that he might present me as his spotless bride to himself. That's the point of my life, and that's the point of your life. Amen? Oh, wow. But there's a negative part of this, a negative part of this age. The Bible calls it a time of great tribulation for God's people in Mark chapter 13. It's a time where the Bible says that this present evil age is called evil in Galatians, and that Satan is the god of this world. He has a certain control, a certain power that for some reason in God's mysterious wisdom he has given to him. The church has to continually contend with this, with our own flesh, right? With our own sinful nature, it's been called. That even though we're, we're in Christ, we still kind of carry around this sinful nature that has not been, been um, utterly taken out yet, but will be when Christ returns. So this fallen world is energized by Satan, who is a liar, an accuser, a destroyer, and a tempter. That's what we got to contend with. That's what we wrestle with, that wrestling match that we described um, some weeks ago. In Galatians chapter 1, it calls it evil. You see, friends, we all know the positives and the... I mean, let's take out the religious language. You say, I'm not a Christian, I don't buy any of this. Okay, well, do you know that there are some really awful things flying around the atmosphere? Isn't that true? You see, the Christian just says, well, that's because that there is a sinful force that there are fallen forces, unseen armies that have influence over us. The Bible even says that we even have this over ourselves. It's called sin. You see, we might use different language to describe what it is, but isn't it there? We can't deny that. What the Bible says, the Bible tells us why it's there. And it gives us the, reason, the, the way of escape, the way out. The end, number four... So there's, it's the end of this age. The end is certain, the end is imminent, the, it's the end of this age. The end, I've kind of already implied this, is inaugurated by the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, and how beautiful is this? Imagine this. Jesus said in the same way, in Acts chapter 1, in the same way, 
that you see me leaving today, I will return. I'm coming back. You say, but why did he leave? Why this space? Well, again, we answered it in Second Peter. Not wishing that anyone should perish. We have a job to do, church. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our own hearts and to those around us so that they might not perish, but that they might have life. You see? But it's coming to an end, and Jesus is coming back. Tell us, it says in the Gospel of Mark, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So he's talking about the end, there's going to be an end. He said, well, how do we know when this, is, when this happens? What's kind of like the events that surrounds the end? And this is Jesus' answer. In those days after that tribulation, that's our present age, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that in the, are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You see, the end of this age is marked by the visible return of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? The Bible promises that the same Jesus that died on this cross right now is preparing a place for his bride in the third heaven with God the Father, and he's coming back to get us. He's coming to get you. The Bible even says that when he comes, some of us who are still alive won't even die. That when he comes, those of us who remain will be caught up with him in the air. So we'll experience an immediate transformation and, and we'll be given an, an immediate body that can live forever in God's presence. Isn't that incredible? And then the dead will, the, the, excuse me, the dead will rise. So those of us, those of you who died will rise and the rest will be caught up in the air with God. See, Christ is coming back. In those days after that tribulation, the Son of Man will be coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then, this is what he does, he will send forth the angels and gather together his elect, that's God's people, from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Isn't that incredible? The promise, the divine inevitability that Jesus Christ, the same one that spoke the Sermon on the Mount, the same one that was murdered and put in a tomb, is going to return for you. He's coming back. And you know what he's going to do when he gets back? He's going to fix your broken heart. And he's going to dry your tears. That's what it says at the end of the book of Revelation. There is no more sorrow or pain or crying. For the old things, the present age, the old things are gone. It's the end of that. For the new things have come. Oh, beautiful promise. What a hope. The Bible calls this the blessed hope of the believer of Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope. What are you living for, friend? What am I living for? Am I living for the bride? I mean the bridegroom that's coming for me at any moment? Am I ready? Am I prepared for him? Because then, when I see him face to face, it says in John, I will be like him, 
because I will see him as he is. Oh, let's prepare our hearts, our souls for that day because it's coming quickly. It's coming quickly. Christ, when he returns, what's this new age like? The end of the old, the beginning of the new. Christ, when he returns, will renovate the entire creation. How many people have ever renovated their homes? Big job, right? You know, load-bearing walls get in the way and all this stuff. Lead, if your house is old. It's not easy to renovate. The Bible teaches that God himself, because all creation is under the curse of sin, we read that in the very beginning of the book of the Bible in Genesis, God renovates it all. He recreates it. He redeems it because of what Jesus did. It says in Romans that even the creation groans for the coming of Christ. It groans for it because it's under the curse too. It's under the burden of sin too. The Bible says that in this end, the lion lies with the lamb. The child will put its hand in the the adder's den and won't be harmed. You see, that's the world God created, but we live in a fallen world, a broken world, a a world with sickness and death and sorrow. You see, but when, when Jesus comes, Christ renovates and rules over the earth and all her kingdoms. Now, there's too many, there's so many verses in the Bible that talk about this. I will just invite you to go home and read Zechariah chapter 14. Write it down. Um, it's one place of many in Scripture that talks about what happens when Christ returns. Peter summarizes it in 2 Peter chapter 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Remember, we just read this. In which the heavens, now the heavens in Scripture are, is the universe, basically the stars. There are three heavens in the Bible. The first heaven is the atmosphere where the birds tweet, 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 fly. The second heaven is the stars. The heaven like we are used to talking about, heaven like being with God, that's the third heaven. So sometimes when the Bible says heaven, it's not talking about God's presence. It's talking about where the birds fly. Does that make sense? Or where the stars are. Okay. So um, consider that when we read this. Um, The heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Licked up. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. You see, when Jesus comes, he renovates. He makes it new. He makes it what it was supposed to be. Isn't that great? There are so many other places in the Bible that I think even sort of indicate. You know, you know that heaven is on earth? We think heaven, in, in Scripture, we, a lot of times just in our minds, we, we imagine heaven as like some kind of weird nebulous. We're, we're just kind of nothing, like clouds. and We're just sort of floating around somewhere. But in heaven, heaven has a location in Scripture. It's on the recreated earth. And God is present. Jesus is present with us. That's the kingdom. That's the life to come. But the earth is no longer the kingdom of man. That's the point. Wicked rulers that decimate societies and massacre people groups are gone. Fallen kingdoms that rule and reign now are subject to his will then. Isn't that great? Because the Bible says that when Christ comes, he is literally 
reigning in Jerusalem as king of all things. Fantastic. Again, read Zechariah chapter 14. Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he not only renovates this earth, but he rules in a perfect righteousness. We don't snub each other anymore. Why did she say that to me? You know, I saw, you know, he shook his hand, but he didn't shake my hand. Why on earth? We won't do that. Isn't it great that we won't do that anymore? We won't create narratives that, like, just are completely made up? Isn't that fantastic? That we'll look at each other with perfect love and not jealousy and not strife and not competition. You see, that's the kingdom that the Bible describes. Because when Jesus comes, number six, salvation for his people is finally perfected. For we know, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we know in part and we prophesy in part. That just basically means that, you know, right now, we don't have all the information. We're not, we don't understand as much as we could. And we're not like God as much as we should be. This is what it's getting at. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Think, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with child childish things for now we see in a mirror dimly isn't it kind of dim and we know jesus we we got some of the message but it's still kind of dim now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face face to face now i know in part but then i will know fully just as I have been fully known. Now, I want you to try to take that analogy of knowing and put it in the context of marriage in Scripture. To know your bride in Scripture or your bridegroom in Scripture is to be married to them and have sexual union with them. Not to get too graphic. But it means that nothing is hidden anymore. That there is a perfect union. There's no hiding. See, the Bible describes the same when Christ returns for his bride. The bridegroom is no longer preparing the place in heaven, which is Christ, but he's coming for us to consummate the marriage. Isn't that fantastic? Friends, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, you'll be fully known, and you will fully know. You will you will be fully known by Christ and you will fully know him. No more dim mirrors. No more fog. We'll enter into the home that he's preparing for us right now, the Bible says. No more distance between us and Christ. It's gone. Any sin that remains in us now is finally destroyed when he comes. All the pains and sorrows and terrors and fears and anxieties that sort of chase us around now are gone then. Oh, but friends, for those of us who perhaps have never trusted in Christ by faith, when he comes, the judgment will be final. And this is sobering. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Someone's in the mother's room playing with that thing again. That's why that, no, I'm serious. That's why that's happening. So maybe um, go tell them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> it wasn't my wife. <laughs> For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Oh, friends, we think, oh, isn't that great? Noah entered the ark. He was saved. It's not about Noah's salvation, though. It's not talking about how great it was for him. It's talking about something else. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, the, the Son of Man coming, the end of this age, the, 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 this age ending at the coming of the Son of Man is likened to the days of Noah when that ark door closed and their doom was sealed. Friend, it's not necessary. God's love and offer of forgiveness of everything that you've ever done is given to you right now, this day, this moment. Believe in him and you'll be saved. There's some implications I want to talk about real quickly as we close to all this. This description of the end, that it's certain, that it's imminent at any time, that it's the end of this age. I need those. I was reading them. I'm sorry. Can you go back to that screen? <laughs> there we go. The, that it's inaugurated by the second coming of Christ, that Christ will renovate rule over the earth and its kingdoms, that salvation is perfected and that judgment is final. There's implications to this in our lives now as Christians and as people perhaps that don't know Christ yet. And what are they? It's, it tells us what they are in our text. The first thing it says, because the end is near. Now, if you're a Christian and you're a part of God's church, you have to hear this. It says, live soberly. Live in sobriety. Don't live as a drunkard. You see, the Bible isn't talking about literal alcohol here. A drunkard is someone who is out of touch with reality. Isn't that true? So Peter says three times in Peter, Live soberly. Think clearly. To think with sobriety is to live life according to what is true and not according to what is false. And as Christians, you know that we live according to what is false all the time. We forget that there is a greater story to our life, that Christ is our bride, bridegroom, that he's coming for us, that our life is about him preparing us, purifying us to meet him. We forget that and we live for everything else. Don't we? Isn't that true? I do it all the time. I'm not living soberly when I do that. So we live, the way that we live soberly is that we live life now as if he's coming back for us at any moment. We're prepared for it. Prepared. We're ready. It's a looking to the bridegroom and not to the best man. You know, you ever been to a wedding? You ever go to one? Yeah, you all been one. You probably all maybe even been in one. You've been at a wedding because you were getting married maybe two or three times, right? So imagine you're the groom, and here comes the bride walking down the aisle, and 
she's beautiful and she's dressed all lovely and oh my goodness, this is the greatest day of my life. And as she approaches, you realize she's not looking at you. Her eyes are a little bit off-center. And then as she gets even closer, you realize, oh, what's this? She's looking at the best man. She's, she's making googly eyes to him. And, she, and he's giving them back. You see, friends, when our greatest desire in life is houses or marriage or power or money or family, we're giving googly eyes to the best man. That's what we're doing. It's, the best man's great. I love the best man. I've been the best man a few times. It's a great job. We can respect the best man. We can even want the best man to be in the room. But he's not the groom. There's only one groom. Look to him, friends. Live soberly. He's coming for you. 1 John chapter 3. And when he appears, you'll be like him because you'll see him as he is. And you know that when you live soberly, you know what this does to us? It has this number two. Pray earnestly. It makes our prayers earnest passionate, directed. They're not just about my hurt knee or the job I lost. It includes those things. The Bible says pray for all things. But there's so much. You know that when you read the prayers of Scripture, they're almost always about our love and union with Christ. They're almost never about some tr trying to fix some pro a problem we're in or get us out of a jam. Our prayer, the prayer, our prayer when we live soberly, our prayers become earnest. We're not intoxicated with the world anymore. And friend, you know that when you're intoxicated with the world, you will pray intoxicated prayers. You will. There are some prayers the Bible even says that God doesn't even hear. There was a, a story in the Bible. You remember this story? Where God, there's this guy praying, Oh God, I'm so glad I'm not like this jerk who is a sinner. Right? You remember that part of the Bible? It's in the Gospels. And then the, then, then the, the Bible kind of like puts the mic on the other guy's prayer. And he says, <clears throat> I can't even look up to you because you're so holy and I'm so fallen. And the Bible says that that man is the man's prayer that was heard. You see, when we live soberly, we'll pray soberly. When we live intoxicated, we'll pray intoxicated. When God doesn't oblige us to the things that we pray for, we end up mad at him, angry at him, and maybe even hate him. Our minds and our hearts are not sober to the fact that God has created us to be married to him, not to his stuff. But the one that longs to be fully known by the bridegroom, oh, we don't use prayer as a tool to get the father's stuff, to get the best man. We use prayer to get the groom, the bridegroom, right? Because we want him. We want his love. We want his affection. We want his peace. We want his joy. We want to be near him. And all of a sudden, the sobriety that we live in and the prayers that we pray earnestly causes us to love deeply. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love deeply. Bible says. You know that if you care about Jesus, then you will care about his people? That's what I'm getting at here. The, the Bible just launches in right now to life together in his community. Why? 
Why is loving, in, in Scripture, loving God's people is loving Jesus? Did you know that? Loving God's people is loving, hating God's people is hating Jesus. Not forgiving God's people is not forgiving God's people, is not forgiving Jesus. If we're going to care for the bridegroom, we're going to love what he loves. Isn't that true? If the bridegroom is giving eyes to the bride, shouldn't that mean that we likewise have a great respect and reverence and love for what he loves too? To love God's people is to love Jesus. To hurt God's people is to hurt Jesus. Read Acts chapter 9. Read Matthew chapter 25. When did you do this? When did you visit me when I was prison in prison? Right? When did you give me a cup of cold water? And as much as you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. You see, something happens when we live for Jesus coming, our prayers become earnest, and we start to love his people in a way that we haven't before. We really love God's people. They're not just annoying and loud. Right? We all have a... a we all have pe things about people that we don't like, right? Isn't that true? Do you know, you know that you count for that too? <laughs> There's something about you that it's on their list and that they don't sit next to you because of that thing. Isn't that true? I don't think that about, I'm, I'm normal, right? So I'm not the misfit. Oh, but friends, like we're all misfits. We're all misfits. And the Bible calls us to love each other deeply. When we love Christ, when we expect his coming, when we pray earnestly, we will love deeply and we'll also serve each other continually. Isn't that true? We'll help each other. We'll help the physical needs of God's people. You'll speak his words faithfully to each other. Listen to this, this as it closes. Show hospitality. Here's how you love. How do you love each other deeply? Well, show hospitality. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Whoever speaks as one who speaks God's word, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified. You see, when we love deeply, we'll serve continually. This is the progress, this is the life, the implications of the coming of Christ on the believer's life are these four things. They nurture sobriety, prayer, love, and service. That's what happens. And they sort of happen on their own. When we really begin to expect the bridegroom to come for us, then all of those four things just sort of automatically fall into place. We don't have to turn them on. They turn themselves on. Prepare yourselves, friends, because he is coming with clouds. And his reward is with him. Do you believe that? He is coming with clouds. And his reward is with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, oh God, I pray, Lord, that that verse would give us sobriety. That he is patient, not wishing you to be separated from him would you come to him this morning would you believe in him by faith would you turn from all the other things that you've trusted in and trust in Jesus Christ